0: I'll encourage you, if you're able, to please rise as we continue our walk through the book of Zechariah. We'll be in chapter 3 this morning. And as I've told you a number of times now, this book is, um, is, is wonderfully beautiful. And this is another one of Zechariah's visions that we see uh, revealed to us through God's Word. So hear the reading of God's Word from Zechariah chapter 3. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen it, Jerusalem, rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you and will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. So far the reading of God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Dear Lord, you tell us, that this, what we just read, it won't wither and it won't die because you have written this word in our hearts and it is living and it is active and it's your word. So we pray that Holy Spirit, you would now take this, your word, the words that you have given to me to say to your people, may you carry them, carry these words to the hearts and the lives of these people here, mold them and shape them by your power, by your strength, by your love, and by your grace. We pray this in Jesus' strong name. Amen. You may be seated. Wartburg Castle. Maybe some of you have heard of this castle. But Wartburg Castle in 1520, a man sat at a desk. He sat at a desk in the early 1520s, and he was tormented. Tormented and tormented, tormented by things he had done and things he hadn't done. One of the things that Martin Luther did not do was relent as he stood before the Diet of Worms. And we know this story well, right? Luther famously said, here I stand, I can do no otherwise. I will not relent in my convictions. I will not deny what the Lord has put before me. For his conviction was to cast to a room, and for his convictions, he was cast into a room in Warburg Castle to consider, to reconsider his thoughts, to reconsider his convictions. And as he sat at that desk for many years, he wrote and wrote and wrote. But as he wrote and as he wrote, he contemplated more and more and more. But as he became more and more productive and as he contemplated more and more, he felt as if he was being tormented more and more and more tormented by the devil. In May of 1521, Martin wrote a letter to his friend Phil, Philip Melanchthon, and in this letter he began to to tell his friend about a spiritual depression that he was facing. This torment this torture that he felt like he was going through. He battled this depression for days and days and weeks. And one of these nights, he wrote his friend Phil, and he said, I had a dream. I had a dream in which Satan appeared to me. And he stood there with a scroll. And he unraveled the scroll, and on this scroll was ornately written each and every sin that Martin Luther had ever committed. And Satan stood there ready to condemn, ready to accuse. And as the voice of the enemy smoothly and casually glided over every letter of every word of every sentence, Martin Luther tells Philip Melanchthon that he writhed in agony in his dream and he writhed in agony on the floor for the enemy assured him that no matter what he did or what he didn't do, he was certainly going to pay. And he was certainly going to go to hell. How could God love him? How could God actually call him to lead his people? Martin, you can't do it. You haven't done it. Your pathetic desire to serve the Lord is for naught. And the scroll was being read word after word, sentence after sentence. All Martin could do was writhe in agony until after he had enough, Martin rose from the dream and he grabbed the ink bottle on his desk and he hurled the ink bottle at who he thought was the devil. But the devil vanished quickly and you can go, legend says, to this very day to the room in Wartburg Castle and you can see the stain imprint from the bottle of Martin Luther as he hurled this ink bottle, at the devil. For in that moment, he cried out, Martin did, to the devil, and he said, all is true. All of these are things are true. And there's even more that you don't have on that list because there are things that only God and I know about. But put at the bottom of your list, he says these words. He says, the blood of Jesus Christ's Son cleanses us from all our sins. Put that at the bottom of your scroll, Mr. Devil." In saying these words, he gripped that ink and he hurled it at the wall. How often do we feel just as Martin Luther feels? How often do we fear the very same thing of the potential of the enemy standing by with a scroll that shows our life? And how he would smoothly and calmly read out and accuse us of every single thing that we've ever done. Imagine the horror. Imagine the guilt. Imagine the shame. This is what Martin Luther saw in his dream. The fear of being exposed. The fear of being torn from the inside out by the enemy who stands accusing you and me, us, of the very thing that haunts, the very things I should say, the very things that haunt our dreams. Dare I say, the things that haunt our realities. The things that we kept hidden away, tucked away. Martin Luther saw the same thing that Zechariah saw. Both saw and experienced the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. For as the enemy stands, lobbing smooth accusations, lobbing smooth accusations that pierce our reality, pierce our truth, What did they both see? They saw that Jesus steps in between the accuser and ourselves, and that Jesus doesn't just stand there, but he lies on a cross with our scrolls upon his shoulders. This picture is painted for us on the words of Zechariah. It's painted for us even more strongly in verse 10 of chapter 3 for how does Jesus step in? How does he remove the threat of the accuser? In verse 10 of chapter 3, he says, I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. That day is the day the Lord Jesus took a nail in his right hand, took a nail in his left, and took another in his feet. That day is the day the Lord Jesus was crucified and not only stood but laid in a tomb in my place, in your place. That's the day that Zechariah was hoping for, a day that the iniquity was removed from God's people. It is then this kind of love and this kind of mercy that then allows us to experience and to see the grace of our Lord in every area. Because that scroll that's laid out before Zechariah, before Martin Luther, before us, covers every area of our lives, doesn't it? That scroll touches everything that we do, say, and act upon. And so we need a kind of grace that touches and cleanses every area of our lives. And this is what Zechariah 3 is all about. Zechariah 3 shows us in beautiful ways just how we experience this kind of grace in our lives. So let us together see firsthand the wonders of this grace in our lives. In order to, to best understand Zechariah chapter 3, we need to understand the characters that are happening here in this vision, right? Some of them are pretty obvious. Some of them are not so obvious. The obvious characters in this story are the enemy, right? It says Satan is there. We all know who Satan is. He doesn't need an explanation. He's kind of like Voldemort in Harry Potter. We just don't even say his name just because we don't even, it's just not worth it. We don't say his name because he's not worthy of calling his name. He's there. But there's some angels and it says there's other people gathered there. Zechariah is there. And then there's this guy called Joshua. Who is Joshua? Is it the Joshua that we know of from the book of Joshua? Is that who is standing here before Zechariah and these angels and the enemy? Is it him, the one that led God's people in, through the wilderness into the promised land, the guy that helped Moses? Is it that Joshua? No, it's not. It's a different Joshua. Joshua was a pretty common name in those days, Yeshua. And this Joshua, he is the high priest, and he actually is a high priest of the people of Israel. We know that because he's referred to in Nehemiah, Haggai, Ezra, as well as here in Zechariah. So it's clear that this Joshua is an actual person, and he has an actual job. And this actual person named Joshua is actually the high priest of Israel. That's important for the story. But to best understand this Joshua, it's good to be reminded Okay, so what? Why is he in this story? Why is he in Zechariah's vision for this time right now? And why is it in God's word? Okay, so we need to be reminded. Not all of us remember or perhaps know what is the role of a high priest? What does the high priest Joshua do? What are his, what's his job description? Now, I'm not going to go through an exhaustive list of everything that high priests do. But to highlight one thing that the high priest does, and it's a fairly common understanding that I think we know, but on the Day of Atonement, or the the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies one day of year, and he would go through this long process of putting on certain clothes and certain things around his waist and all of these things, and it's a very ornate and detailed list of things that he has to go to in order to enter into the Holy of Holies into the presence of the Lord. This was one of the jobs of the high priest. Why? Because at that moment, the day of atonement, the high priest was representing the entire body of the people of Israel. He entered into the presence of the Lord with the body of Israel behind him. To say to the Lord, I represent this your people. And he now is entering into this moment where there's a sacrifice to be made, not just for him, but for all of the people. And so here in Zechariah 3, this is the scene that the the people hearing this prophecy, hearing Zechariah's dream, understand. Oh yes, Joshua is the high priest, and the high priest's job is to represent me before the Lord. What he does by representation is what we do. And so he here is before the Lord. This is extremely important for us to understand what this is. And so he stands in the presence of the enemy, in the presence of the angels, in the presence of the Lord. He stands there. But what does it say about Joshua? Do you remember? What is he doing? How is he doing? He's just standing there. What we we know about high priests, as we just said, is that they're supposed to have this ornate and very dramatic, pristine outfit as they enter into the Holy of Holies. It's to be clean beyond clean. It's supposed to represent holiness and righteousness in order to go before the presence of the Lord because the Lord can't be in the presence of evil or sin, so the, the, the priest has to go through a cleansing process and he has to have new clothes all of these things to enter into the presence of the Lord. But here, Zechariah says, Joshua, is he in clean clothes? No, he's in filthy clothes. In dirty clothes. What does that mean? It means he's guilty. He stands there. He stands there, dirty. He stands in front of the enemy, ashamed knowing that what the accuser is going to accuse him of is absolutely 100% correct, guilty. And the angel of the Lord says to him, I am going to remove your iniquity. I will remove it all. I will give you something. And they say to him, Put on new clothes. Give him new clothes. The priest will no longer stand accused in the filth of his guilt, but rather have new clothes. His iniquity is removed. And then there's an interesting statement. So we're talking about having these dirty clothes taken off and putting new clothes on. It should hearken us back to what Paul says to us over and over again as well, right? You take on, you put off the old clothes and you put on new clothes. This is where Paul gets this from, right? It's this idea of taking off the old and putting on the new. But then Zechariah, who's at this point a bit of a bystander, and he he jumps into the conversation and he says, wait a minute, wait a minute, don't just put new clothes on him. Put a new turban on his head too. Okay, so this is actually, to me, fascinating. At first reading, we would think, "Well, well, that makes sense, right? If they're putting on new clothes, then he should have a new hat. It would complete his, his garment, right? It would complete the, the ensemble, if you will. He would need to have, it just seems like a, another addition or another small detail. But there's far more at stake going on in Zechariah's statement. Put a fresh turban on his head. Zechariah knew his Torah. He knew his Torah well. He knew that in Exodus, the Lord had given specific instructions on what the high priest was to wear and why he was to wear what he was wearing. If you would like, you can turn to Exodus 28, verses 36 and 38. I'm just going to read it, but just put a finger there perhaps. But Exodus 28, 36 to 38, says these words about this thing called a turban. You shall make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it, like the engraving of a signet. On that engraving, this is my words. On that engraving, it says, holy to the Lord. And you shall fasten it on the turban by a cord of blue. It shall be on the front of the turban. It shall be on Aaron's forehead. Time out just for a second. Who was Aaron? The high priest that we know, right? Moses, Aaron was the high priest and he's having this turban put on his head. It shall be on Aaron's forehead and Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. It shall regularly be on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. The high priest puts on a turban with a signet on it so that the people could be accepted by the Lord without a new turban on Joshua's head. The people are not accepted by the Lord. And Zechariah says, put a turban on that man's head. The turban was a significant part of the priest's outfit. For when the turban was placed on the head of the high priest, the people of the Lord could go before the presence of the Lord, no matter what the accuser has said. There's more to the turban and the nameplate that's put upon it. For these signify that the people have been made new. Not just Joshua, not just the high priest, but with a new turban, the people are holy to the Lord. The result then is twofold. The first is assurance. We've acknowledged the fact that one of our fears, or I've acknowledged that one of my fears, was to have the devil roll out a scroll of my life. I don't want anybody to see that. And I don't want to see yours. It's a fear we have. And we, like Martin Luther, can say, you know what? There's more to it even that you don't know of, Satan. That's only between me and the Lord. But with this fear, when the Lord Jesus takes away our filthy clothes, he removes the scroll. He rolls it back up and he lights a fire to it, and he casts it away. And he puts new clothes on us, and he puts a new turban on us, so we're assured in that moment that we have no more accuser. No one stands there to lob accusations. They're gone. The Lord knows them, and he's covered them, and he's washed them. We are assured that he's that we are acceptable before the Lord. Two, that with these new clothes we have new life. We are new creatures, new creations, as Paul says. Practically speaking, then we can say, with assurance comes holiness. With this new assurance, with this forgiveness, with these new clothes, we have a new response to live godly lives, to live as He would want us to live. They go hand in hand. When we are assured of our salvation and we're assured of our acceptance by God, we can't go back to the old life. We can't go back to the old ways. We just can't. So, why do we? We are to live godly lives in all situations. This, then, is what this vision is all about. We are guilty in our sins. We stand there just as Joshua did with filthy, dirty clothes, broken, beaten, clothes with holes in them, barely draped on our shoulders. And the accuser stands there at the ready. But then the Lord puts on new. He gives us new clothes with a new turban. And everything changes grace now covers us grace covers us every day for every day godliness fishing <laughs> i would be lying to you if i if i loved fishing i don't love fishing i know some who do i don't i like fishing i will go fishing but there are times when i prefer some kinds of fishing over others I don't like standing in a lake and just having a bobber stand in the middle of of a lake. That's boring. There could be better things to do. I do, however, like to go on a boat in the ocean, and I like to go ocean fishing because you don't know what you're going to get. If you go to a mountain lake in Colorado, most likely you're going to get a trout, right? You have one kind of fish that you possibly could get, a trout, or maybe some other kind of lake trout, or rainbow trout, or brown trout. There's some variations of trout, but most likely you're going to get a trout. In the ocean, you can get all kinds of critters. You don't have any idea what's going to come up. So part of it is that I like the fascination of you don't know what's going to come up off that hook. It could be a shark, it could be an octopus, could be a kraken for all we know. But you don't know what you're going to get. The other part I like ocean fishing is because I just like the ocean. I like the vastness of it. I like the smell of it. I like the ocean. But there are some people that really do love fishing. I'm not speak to that love, but rather a general sense that I get from the people that love fishing is the anticipation that they have in it. What's going to take the bait? The primal fight for life? Perhaps it's about power or control or life over death. I'm not quite sure. Fishing. Many of us feel fishing is like grace. God puts the invitation of grace into the water. All we have to do is bite onto the invitation, and he reels us up. Perhaps we've heard another illustration that, you know, if we take the bait, the invitation of life, we have grace that he'll take us out of the ocean, he'll take us out of the water. If we don't, then the outcome is bleak and we're just left to our own devices Grace, then, is the fact that the Lord put the hook into the ocean, right? He gave you the invitation. It's there for you. All you got to do is take it. Or maybe the illustration is you've been told it's a life preserver. We're in the ocean, and the Lord throws out a life preserver, and we just have to grab a hold of the life preserver, and he pulls us out. That's grace. It's grace because the Lord didn't have to give us a life preserver, right? This is the way the illustration goes. The picture that we see in Zechariah chapter 3 is something different. Something different entirely. The picture that we see in Zechariah, the, 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 the situation of the people was far more dire. Joshua stands there guilty as charged. He stands there with filthy clothes. He stands there ashamed, silent. It's far more dire. But it's also far more glorious than fishing or even a life preserver. The picture that we see here is yet again the enemy standing at the ready to read the scroll of accusations against us, but the enemy was rebuked with the harsh reality of truth. In verse 2, we then are given the picture of this grace, aren't we? Not a hook in the ocean, not a life preserver, but the kind of grace that sets out on a mission. A kind of mission to do what? To gather his people to himself. For in verse 2 we see, what does it say? I chose Jerusalem as my own. He chose them. The rebuke then to the accuser is is not that they were better or, or, or more worthy because the scroll says everything that they are guilty, that we are guilty. Everybody knows it. He's standing there with dirty clothes. We're guilty. He's guilty. The accusations are entirely true and they would even hold up in court. The nature of the rebuke is based upon what the Lord has done, not what Joshua has done. It's never been about our righteousness. It's never been about our actions towards God, our biting under the hook, our grabbing on to the life preserver. preserver. It's, It's that God takes action towards us. Simply his love and his grace for his people. This is what the Lord Moses was told. It was not because you were great in number, you were actually few in number, but because the Lord loves you and is keeping his promises that he made to your fathers. This is what the Lord says as to why he took them up out of Exodus. Not because they were the biggest, baddest, wealthiest, most powerful people in the world, actually quite the opposite. It was because the Lord loved them. And he reached out and he chose Jerusalem. And he fulfilled his promise. Spurgeon says of this scene, If God hath chosen his people, if that's true, then it is no use for Satan to attempt their overthrow. Christ here does not meet Satan with ifs or buts, but he meets him with the high mysterious truth which was settled before the world was. He throws, and and listen, these are Spurgeon's words. Charles Spurgeon. He throws, as it were, this chain, this chain of truth into his teeth, into the teeth of the devil, into his teeth and bids him, chomp till you break your teeth. God has chosen Jerusalem. Let that rebuke be enough. This is what Spurgeon says. The truth is, is that everybody knows the accusations are true and Jesus takes it right back and throws it at the enemy and says, chomp on that. I still choose them. I still love them. And he does the same thing for you. Friends, this is an amazing comfort. And the assurance of being chosen by the Lord, by the Lord that he chooses us unto himself, there is nothing more the enemy can say. The Lord knows you're guilty. The Lord knows everything about you. And yet he still says, I choose you. And I love you. The grace of the Lord does not cause our mouths to be shut, but rather shuts the mouth of the accuser. And I really like what Morse Burgeon says. Not only does it shut the mouth of the accuser, but it throws a chain into his teeth. Bite on that. So then we live not in fear of accusation anymore, do we? But in Freedom. Freedom of grace. This freedom then motivates us to live this new kind of life—a life of godliness, which a, go, a life of godliness which is now defined by this grace, by the fact that the Lord shows us out of the muck, out of the mire, out of our dirty clothes, and He puts new clothes on us, and we're defined by these new clothes because we're a new people with a new mission. Grace is a wonderful thing because it not only frees us but it silences the accuser. But at the very same time, it frees us and it moves us into a certain direction. It moves us to, to take up the mission of the Lord. And Zechariah hears just what that mission of the Lord is at the conclusion of this vision, doesn't he? The nations will come and know this grace. It's not just about Israel. It's not just about Jerusalem. But it's about your neighbors. It's about your loved ones. Grace moves us from a people who stand accused to a people of action. If we have truly experienced grace, friends, we've been given a job description. A job description, a job description for each and every one of us. We have a responsibility. A responsibility to, as it says here at the end, to invite our neighbors. To have them gathered under the shade of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. To love them, to care for them, to nurture them, to hear their stories, to cry with them, to laugh with them, to live with them, to share meals with them. This is what it's saying to us. In this grace, this is who we are, for this is what the Lord has done for us. We're to join on this mission of the Lord bringing the nations to Himself. However, or I should say in addition there's something even more glorious than that being communicated to us at the conclusion of this vision. That because of grace, everything has changed. At the beginning of the vision, we saw this scene, right? Where the enemy and Joshua and Zechariah, some angels and other folks were standing there. The scene is dire. It's bleak. What's going to happen? We're supposed to feel that tension, that drama. What's going to happen to Joshua? Is he going to live? Is he going to die? Is the enemy going to take him? What's the Lord going to do? This, we're supposed to feel this drama. We're supposed to feel this gutturally. But the Lord Jesus steps in and rebukes the accuser and silences his claims, and puts new clothes upon our backs, and a new turban on our head. He accepts us as his own, because he's chosen us as his own. And then a promise is given to us, with the same and in the same assurance, as the earlier promise that our sins are removed. The promise, the promise is, the nations will come. They will be loved. And we will love them. They will be cared for, and we will care for them. Those that we love will be brought into the safety of the Lord's house and into his community. At the very heart of this chapter is the reality that the angel did not challenge Joshua to remove his clothes. The angel didn't say, Joshua, take off your clothes and go get some more. You can't be in here with those clothes on. Rather, it was declared to him I have taken away your iniquity. I have taken it away from you and I will clothe you with new vestments. I will do it. This is the angel of the Lord saying this. It was only then that the command was given to obey and to walk. Only then, after grace was supplied, do we embark then on this mission. This then gives us the assurance, doesn't it? That it's not our righteousness that makes us better or worse. It's not our righteousness that causes blessings to come to us, but only, 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 only the grace and the love of our Lord that causes our blessing. God's plan of salvation is, as one commentator put it, is not to redeem Israel and then sit back and see what he and his fellow Israelites would do. Instead, the vision directs us to the greater Joshua that he would come, and that's Jesus Christ people of God, this then is the lesson for us in Zechariah 3 also. Salvation isn't dependent upon you. The command isn't go put on new clothes, fly higher, fly straighter. No, it's to see and to know the grace of your Savior. It's, it's that we stand on the righteousness of the Lord That we all, yes, stand accused, but just as Martin Luther did, just as Joshua did, salvation doesn't depend on our faithfulness, but rather that God sent, sent His only Son, Jesus Christ, to be the servant through whom forgiveness and righteousness and blessings come to those who believe. So that all the nations will truly be God's people. The grace of the Lord Jesus is the picture that stirs our souls, that moves our bodies and allows us to rest assured in his great and amazing love for us. Zechariah 3 paints a beautiful picture of God's grace. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we give you thanks that you've stood in between us and our accuser. That as we stand dirty, guilty, naked, and ashamed, you put new clothes of love and grace upon us. Move in our hearts, stir in our lives to love and serve you each and every day. Thank you for this amazing grace. Thank you for your love. We pray this in Jesus' strong name. Amen.